I want to move on now to the, the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. And if you looked at today's passage in your Bible, um, you would probably see some brackets around it. Because this story is not found in the earliest copies of the Gospel of John. However, both ancient and modern scholars believe it to be authentic eyewitness material. And if you want to know more about that and and why it's placed here in the gospel, then you're going to have to catch our podcast discussion with Elder Matt Cabot. I'm sure we'll go over it then. This is one of the most memorable, controversial, and encouraging episodes in Jesus' ministry. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the word of the Lord. So follow along as I read from John 7, 53 through 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we are grateful for your word, and we ask that you would use it this morning and use it in our lives uh, by the power of your Spirit uh, to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus. Make us more and more like him. Help us to enjoy him and be united to him and to walk with you and help us to bring uh, this good news and love uh, to our neighbors and coworkers, to Silicon Valley and beyond. Be with us now in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month, I uh, read an essay by a woman who, who told her story. She grew up in a fundamentalist Christian environment and fully embraced it. She was super, super smart. She went to a Christian college, and she was going to graduate college at age 19 and then go to Yale for graduate school. Her senior year, she got involved with a guy and ended up getting pregnant. They decided to get married and make a go of having a family together, which meant no grad school for her. She recounts, While I was pregnant, the elders at my fiancé's church wanted us to come down to the front of the sanctuary one Sunday morning after the service and confess that we had sinned by having premarital sex. Because I was not a member of that congregation, my fiancé asked if he could do it by himself. The elders said I needed to be a part of it, even though that denomination does not typically allow women to speak to an assembly of both men and women. They said that if we refused to do this, the ladies of the church might not be willing to throw us a baby shower. I felt so angry and humiliated and diminished. 
When my daughter was about a year old, I realized I couldn't bear for her to grow up there in that community, and I left religion immediately and without looking back. After trying my whole life to hold my faith at the center of my being in the world. Twenty years later, the rest of her essay does not have kind words for Christianity or the church. And if you asked a bunch of random people what words came to mind that they associated with Christians or church, one of the words frequently mentioned would be condemning. Now, in today's culture, shame and condemnation come from every direction, not just Christian. But what is interesting is that when you look at Jesus in this passage, you see the opposite of shame and condemnation. It's not what Jesus was about. He didn't shame and condemn the people in this passage, and he doesn't shame and condemn us. As I already said, our culture struggles with condemnation. We dish it out in heaps, and we hate it when it's heaped onto us. We easily fail at showing one another dignity. And being in the season of New Year's resolutions, we are reminded that our culture is obsessed with personal change and transformation. And what we see here is that all three of these are linked. Dignity, condemnation, change. So that's how we're going to look at this passage under those three headings. Dignity, condemnation, change. The first point, dignity. The authorities robbed a woman of her dignity to make her a pawn in their attempt to hurt Jesus. The setting is Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching in the temple precincts, as many rabbis would do. It's a very public place. Starting in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses... Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So the religious authorities in Jerusalem are trying to trap Jesus. They place him on the horns of a dilemma. This is the dilemma. Rome controlled Jerusalem. Only Roman authorities could carry out capital punishment. If Jesus says she must be stoned, then they can frame him as a threat and an opponent of Rome and get him killed or imprisoned. If Jesus says to not stone her, then he looks soft on the blatant sin of adultery and loses credibility as a rabbi. They seemingly have him trapped. So this is a contest of wits between Jesus and the authorities. But in the middle of this contest is a woman. They say she's been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, does lay down the penalty for adultery to be death. But the punishment is for both parties, man and woman. Where was the man in this case? Well, as was the situation in the rest of the Greco-Roman world, sexual rules were different for men and women. Women could only be with their husbands, but men could be unfaithful to their wives as long as that was with a prostitute, or a slave, or an unattached woman of lower rank. So promiscuous women were punished. Promiscuous men were not. And the Bible pushes back against that inconsistency, as we'll see. Well, who was this woman? Well, given the convenient timing of finding the woman in the morning nearby the temple, it's possible these men took a nearby prostitute, 
or a woman who was still technically married to one man but was now living with another. Either way, we should assume this was not a dutiful housewife who got caught up in a passionate affair. This must be a woman living more on the margins of society, like the Samaritan woman at the well that we saw in chapter 4. And to these opponents of Jesus, these scribes and Pharisees, she is not a human being. She is simply a prop. They can heap on her shame and indignity because she doesn't matter. It's all about trapping Jesus and winning an argument against Jesus. They clearly don't care about this specific case of adultery, this infraction. And the text says they placed her in the midst, meaning that she was put in the middle of everyone surrounding her, looking at her. Imagine what was going through her mind. The fear, the shame, the sense of indignity. In this whole passage, she says two words in Greek. She never speaks up to defend herself. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have been enraged, saying, who do you think you are? What are you doing? Where's the man in this case? You know this would be an illegal trial. And by the way, when was the last time someone in Israel was stoned for adultery? You see, already this practice had fallen out of use. There were not many, if any, stonings for adultery in this era. I would have just shooed them away and told them to get lost. Jesus does something totally different. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Well, imagine what the woman thought of that. Right? Perhaps she was hoping Jesus would rescue her and come to her defense. Instead, he gives the condition under which they can stone her. And then he seems to nonchalantly go back to writing in the dirt. What? In that first moment, this must not have been comforting for this woman. But it worked. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. These scribes and Pharisees, they did not care about this woman. She had two strikes against her. One, she was a woman. Two, she was a sinner. Telling them that they needed to be sinless to condemn her would have been laughable. Of course, no one is sinless, and executing the law does not depend on human beings remaining sinless. This should not have tripped up Jesus' opponents. So why did they leave silently? Over the centuries, scholars have honed in on this comment that Jesus was writing on the ground in the dirt. The passage doesn't say what he was writing, and it's the only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus writing. But John draws our attention to it twice, which means it's important. What was he writing? Maybe the Ten Commandments, or just the Tenth Commandment against coveting your neighbor's wife, or the warning to men about adultery in Proverbs 5, or the warning about going to prostitutes in Proverbs 7, or the command to rejoice in the wife of your youth found in both Proverbs and Malachi, or from that same passage in Malachi, how God hates divorce, which was very common at the time, or the general indictment of all Israel for adultery against God found in prophets like Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The point is, Jesus wrote something that convicted these men, that made them realize there was little difference between them and her. The men walk away, and Jesus finally addresses the woman. He stood up and said to her, Woman, 
where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. The woman gets to declare the verdict of her accusers. No one condemns me. Jesus invites this woman to discover her own humanity, that she is not condemned by her community, that she is not so different, so untouchable as she and others might have thought. Jesus not only defeats his opponents in their matching of wits, he begins the process of restoring this woman whole, back to society. He could have dealt with this in any number of ways, and being the John Wayne hero as I would have liked to have been would not have been the best. He loved her well, seeking her best, showing her dignity. That was only the beginning, though. Jesus wants to deal with this question of condemnation. This is my second point, condemnation. Verse 11, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If this woman was guilty of adultery, which we should assume she was, why doesn't Jesus condemn her? Does he not care about adultery or sexual immorality? Well, on the contrary, when his disciples hear what Jesus has to say about adultery and divorce in Matthew 19, his disciples conclude that no one should get married in order to avoid committing adultery. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus discusses marriage and sex, he comes down on the most conservative side of Judaism of his time. Marriage is for life. Between one man and one woman, there's no no-fault divorce. There's no sex outside of marriage or before marriage, not even lusting. And yet, when Jesus comes across someone in sexual sin, he has incredible compassion for them and shows them dignity that their culture withholds. He isn't permissive. He isn't affirming in their choices. But he is safe. He's a safe place for sinners living in a world of shame, which might be why his opponents brought him this woman. He had a reputation for being kind to the sexually immoral and sexually broken. But it's clear that Jesus isn't okay with adultery. He says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. He's calling her to change. He's saying to her, you are not a prop. You have moral agency and accountability. That's why he doesn't condemn her. He wants to restore her humanity and see her change. In the New Testament, this word condemn means to judge and sentence someone for execution. It means case closed, story over, verdict rendered, sentence pronounced. It's the word used for what would happen to Jesus on Good Friday, sentenced by the authorities to crucifixion. When you communicate condemnation, you communicate that there's no hope left for you. No more second chances. You are who you are. It's not that you did something wrong. You are something wrong. But Jesus came to change who we are and to change our future. And condemnation rules that out. So that's why he says to the woman, I do not condemn you. And he says to us, I do not condemn you. And if Jesus refuses to condemn people in the middle of their story, why do we shame and condemn people? Speak to and think of them as permanently wrong, damaged, unworthy. Preparing for this sermon this week, I I actually just started saying to myself, I I had to start saying to myself, and sometimes even out loud, as I'm going through the world looking at people, 
I do not condemn you because it's so easy for me. Earlier this week, uh, my whole family went to the dentist for the first time in two and a half years, right? Because of COVID, two and a half years, hadn't been to the dentist. One of my daughters came home with a, a mild cavity, one. And my response was like, you have a cavity? What's the matter with you? Right? All you have to do is brush and floss. But it's been two and a half years. There's been a pandemic. She's a kid. I was aghast. A few minutes later, I came to my senses, and I sat down at the dinner table, and I had to say, I do not condemn you, and I'm sorry. But that's how I go through the world. How often do we condemn people? It is not our right. It is not our job. It is not God's will for us to condemn people, whether we do it as individuals or as a church. Practice saying it about the people you have the harshest judgment for. The people who run red lights, you know how they stretch, they keep going through, even as it goes from yellow to red, putting everyone at risk. I do not condemn you. People stealing the catalytic converters and packages off of front porches at Christmas time. I do not condemn you. People getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated. I do not condemn you. People enforcing mask rules, people ignoring mask rules, I do not condemn you. Addicts, I do not condemn you. Racists, I do not condemn you. Socialists, I do not condemn you. People who won't stand for the national anthem, I do not condemn you. People attracted to the same sex, I do not condemn you. People ruining their family with adultery. I do not condemn you. Practice it. Even these scribes and Pharisees here, who I would have condemned, Jesus doesn't. He lets the word of God convict them, and they go on their way with the hope they might be changed. We do not have the right to condemn. We are chocked full of sin. You are the greatest sinner you know. Now, I do not condemn you does not mean I affirm you. It doesn't mean you're great just the way you are. You be you. We can condemn words and actions. We can disagree. We can call people to change and repentance. That's most definitely the church's role. But it starts by showing people dignity and affirming their humanity and not condemning them. And that's that's what so much of Scripture is about. Change. It's my third point. Right? Going on and from now sinning no more. Change. This is Jesus' command to the woman. This is Jesus' command to us. Go and from now on sin no more. But we have to get the order straight. And if we in our culture, if we don't communicate, hey, you know what, you're a sinner, you're condemned, right? Case closed, it's over. We communicate you're condemned unless you sin no more. Or we communicate, sin no more, or you will be condemned. But Jesus says to all of us, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you hear the difference? That's all the difference in the world. That's the difference between heaven and hell. It is the secret to change. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France this week, said in anger about the unvaccinated, I really want to make life miserable for them. And he used a crass French word. Do you think that's going to work? Is he going to get people to change their minds about vaccination? Monica Gandhi, she's a, a doctor and professor up at UCSF, has been saying as long as we've been dealing with COVID, shame and judgment will not work. You want people to wear masks? You want people to social distance? You want people to get vaccinated? Don't use shame. Don't condemn. It won't work. For all of us, right, we can use the, what's wrong with you? When will you get this right? Stop sinning kind of shame and condemnation. And then there's Jesus' way. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. When we are shown dignity, we are reminded of our humanity. And we want to do better and be better. We want to change. It's like what Paul says in Romans, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not his judgment and harshness. It's his kindness. Grace empowers obedience. We don't change in order to get love. We are loved. Now we can change. Do you see? If you are a Christian, what motivates your desire to change and honor God? Is it God's love? Is it his kindness? Or is it condemnation you feel? You don't do enough. You're not good enough. You don't love enough. You don't know enough. You don't try enough. Sure, maybe Jesus gives us a pass on the first thousand mess-ups, but what about the next 10,000? When does his I do not condemn you run out? And do you feel like it's run out for you? The uh, Chinese Communist Party, the, the government, actually uses this, this story here about Jesus in one of their law and ethics textbooks. This is what it says. Once upon a time, Jesus spoke to an angry crowd that wanted to kill a guilty woman. Of all of you, he who can say he has never done anything wrong can come forward and kill her. After they heard this, the crowd stopped. And when the crowd retreated, Jesus raised a stone and killed the woman and said, I am also a sinner, but if the law can only be executed by a spotless person, then the law will die. Obviously not the gospel story, right? They took some liberties. But the Chinese communists are wrestling with a real dilemma, a real dilemma of reality. What good is a law or standard that none of us can reach? And how can we hold anyone accountable to it if we have no hope of fulfilling it ourselves? We are convinced that Jesus was that spotless person. So goodness, righteousness, the law does live. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. So he is the one who can execute it. But in the greatest, most surprising twist in history, the law executed this spotless person so that sinners could live. I hope the woman who was singled out here in this passage, I hope she heard, maybe even saw the rest of the story. She was in Jerusalem. Jesus allowed himself to be captured by these same authorities. They lied about him in an illegal trial. And he did not speak up to defend himself. He was condemned to die as a blasphemer. He was put in the midst of these men and beaten. And then he was put in the midst of Roman guards, stripped naked and assaulted. Then he was nailed to a wooden pole to die a torturous death, stripped of all dignity and humanity. 
the spotless one who can execute the law with precision, does not condemn us. Instead, he takes our shame and condemnation upon himself. And it is enough to cover over all of our not-enoughs. It is God's love and grace and kindness that will change you, not shame and threats. So if you want to change, go to God's love and grace and kindness first. You are not condemned. Fifty years later, still fighting the same fight? Keep starting with God's love and grace and kindness. You are not condemned. You are told that specifically in Romans 8.1. We just read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. Do you have to be sinless in order to condemn? Yes. Only Jesus can give a final, full verdict over someone's whole life and existence. He's earned the right. He can do that. Since by God's grace we are not condemned, we will not do any condemning. Take the worst thing about you, that which you are most ashamed of. Maybe it's adultery or some other kind of sexual immorality. Maybe it's some kind of violence or assault, theft, abortion, addiction, failing the people you love, failing yourself. Do you hear Jesus say, I do not condemn you? In fact, he says more. He says, I was condemned for you. I took your condemnation because I love you. I see who you are truly meant to be. So go and live that way now. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful uh, that we hear your words in this passage, that you do not condemn and that you send us and empower us through your love and grace, through your sacrificial death, to go and live new lives, changed lives. And we ask that you would do this among us now. Help us to hear what you say to this woman, to say it to us, that you love us, that you have taken our condemnation from us, and that we are free now to live new and different lives, and you fill us with your spirit, that we might more and more become like you. Thank you for this good news. Thank you that there is no condemnation in you. Help us to proclaim that to others. Let us not be condemners, but help us to bring good news that you take condemnation away. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.